0: Chronicles 26, and then we'll come to our passage that we're going to look at tonight, but let me just ask you to turn to 2 Chronicles 26 to begin. Past success is not a guarantee of future results. There's a fine line between pleasing God and defying God, and the shift away from pleasing God to turning against God is very subtle. And up until this point in his life, David has been the model of spiritual wisdom and maturity. He has held fast to obeying God. He has stood up to God's enemies. He has defended God's fame. He has endured hardship like a good soldier. In short, David has pursued a life of spiritual success and he has enjoyed the blessings of a merciful God but with great physical success also comes great responsibility. And with great earthly success, we have great potential for spiritual disaster. And so we must always be on guard. The great danger of earthly success is that that we are more prone to think that we are independent from God, that we don't need God where we think that we have control of our lives. We think that all of the efforts or all of the successes that we have enjoyed are because of our efforts, our ingenuity, our thoughtfulness, our strength. And even though we may have gotten here to the place of success, physical, financial, whatever kind of success, even though we've gotten here by the grace of God, depending on God all all the way, what can happen is when we get here, we look back on those things and think, you know what? Actually, that was me. Look at all the things that I did. Look at how, how well I did this thing. It was my strength, my wisdom. And once we evaluate our circumstances in that way, it's only a matter of time before we fall hard. Once we get to the place where we think we have accomplished our success, apart from God, then we're on the brink of disastrous failure. Look at this text. We're not going to read through the whole thing. I'm just actually going to skim through it. Um, beginning in verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned 52 years. Verse 4, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So here we have someone that's concerned about the things of God. He's wanting, he, he has the interests that God has. He's wanting to... Uh, get rid of the the altars that are being set up to false gods. He's wanting to to make sure that God is worshipped. Verse 5, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah. And then at the end of the verse, as long as he sought God, God prospered him. And verse 6, now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath. Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines. Verse 8, the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Verse, talking about building in verses 9 and 10. Verse 11, Uzziah had an army ready for battle which entered combat by divisions. And then it talks about how many he had under uh, his direction in verses 12 and 13. Verse 14, moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears, so he's equipping them with the instruments that they need. In verse 15, He made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purposes of shooting arrows. Hence His fame spread afar, for He was marvelously helped until He was strong. And then notice verse 16. But when He became strong, His heart was so proud that He acted corruptly and He was unfaithful to the Lord His God, for He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. And at the end, of the end of the verse, But for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosies broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Uzziah was standing firm. He was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord for most of his career. But once he got to a place of success, as a recipient of God's mercy, enjoying much earthly success, he's standing firm. And he thinks he's standing firm because of what he has done. But if a person thinks that he's standing firm, he needs to be careful that he doesn't fall. Now we can turn to our passage, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. David enjoyed much success. David was a recipient of God's mercy. David, as we saw in the last couple of chapters, he was a dispenser of God's mercy to those who didn't deserve it, like Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and Hanan in in chapter 10. But here in chapter 11, David spurns God's mercy. He takes all of the the storehouse of mercy that God has poured out on him and he rejects that in order to pursue his own pleasures. I love what Dale Davis says about this. He says, if you look at the circumstances of David's sin and think, I could never do something like that, then you have just taken the first step toward repeating his vile error. And so... Be warned tonight. Consider this story as you read through it with me. And as you consider what the text has to say, what God has to say through the text, think about the reality, the real possibility of your colossal spiritual failure. And if you don't think it's possible, then you've just taken the first step towards that error. And use this as a way to learn from David's negative example. All right, let me read our text for us. Beginning in verse 1. Follow along in your Bible with me. This is the Word of God. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerebasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died uh, at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? And then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, and we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought, to, brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Tonight, we see in this text that the independence that can come from success will result in spiritual disaster. The independence that can come from success will result in spiritual disaster. Once we get to that place where we think, you know what, this is my world. It's not God's world. This is my kingdom. This is my choice. This is my ability that's gotten me here. Once we get to that place of independence where what you're going to find in this text is that there's no mention of God until the very last verse. There's no praying to God There's no involving God in David's thoughts or choices. And that's what happens when sin takes root in us. We stop depending on God and begging for His mercy and His grace. And we start thinking we can do things on our own. We seek pleasures apart from Him. First thing we see in verse one is that successful people are less and less compelled to depend on God. When I say successful, I put it in quotes there because um, I'm uh, being facetious here or um, ironic. Okay, this not really successful people, but in terms of the world's thinking, David is successful. He he has much goods at the hand of God's mercy. He's received much, even spiritual good, has been stored up for him and given to him. And what we find in verse 1 is that successful people are less and less compelled to depend on God. And In verse 1, uh, we find that, that, the, that David is sending out the men to go fight against the Ammonites. Now, David and his men had already defeated the Ammonites in chapter 10 out in Israel's territory. But now what David's doing is he's sending his men to their hometown. He's sending them to the Ammonites' capital city of Rabbah. And they're going to win and, and make sure that this um, tribute is actually given to Israel from the Ammonites, that there is this sovereign, uh, the suzerain vassal, vassal treaty that, that takes place. So what we see here is that the context of David's sin that we're going to come to begins with what's happening here at home. That all of the men that that are going out to battle are are gone and David's left at home at the palace. It was springtime. And the context of David's sin is not coincidental. It's the time when the text says the kings normally go out to battle, but David stayed home. David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, what I want you to see is that this is not a sin in itself. What David is doing by staying home, you know, often people preach in this way and, and and I'm not going to condemn them or anything for preaching this way, but but I think that this is not sinful that David stayed home. I think it's just actually a a symbol or a a recognition that God has actually done some great work in David, that he actually has the ability to stay home, because there are other battles. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 7, you can go back there, this battle against the Ammonites is one in which David stayed home as well. It says... uh, David's sending them out to war and it says, but the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai and he arrayed them. That's not the verse I'm looking for. 10-7? Oh, I was reading the wrong one. Okay, thank you. I was reading verse 10. Verse 7, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. So David's at a place where normally kings because of the nature of their responsibilities, they actually have to be in the battle. But David has gotten to a place of success where he has a strong enough army and a capable enough commander to be able to send them out on their own. So this is not a sin or even an act of foolishness on David's part to stay home, but it does give us a window into what kind of success he was enjoying as king of Israel. At the, other, at the time when other kings were compelled to lead their troops in battle, David had a a strong enough military to be able to send them on his own. In fact, in chapter twenty-seven, his men would plead with him to stay home. You're too important to our nation, so don't come out into battle. And the point that we need to learn from here is, is um, that that we got to be careful about being feeling comfortable and secu- secure and successful, because. Those things can often lead us to be less and less compelled to depend upon God, especially when we think that that comfort and security comes because of us. And that's exactly what happens with that David, he he feels less and less compelled to depend on God. Second thing that we see in verses 2 through 5 is that successful people get what they want without consulting God. David gets what he wants without consulting God. Verses two through four, he got what he wanted. David is at home in the palace. He's walking around the roof, able to look down. Now, obviously, the palace is going to be on the highest hill, and so he's able to look down over the city to make sure everything's good, everything's in order. And it happened that there was a beautiful woman, happening to be bathing on a wall, on a walled roof outside of her house, or on top of her house, I should say. And she would have been protected from all of her neighbors, but not from the king's palace. And David was a man who was used to giving orders. He was used to getting what he expected. He, he used to telling people what to do and having them do it. It's part of governing. It's part of ruling that you got to give commands. you got to have people do things in order for everything to work. And so he uses his position and the history of authority to find out more about the woman. Notice this key word in verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And then verse 4 David sent messengers and took her. So David first sees the woman, and then secondly, he asks about the woman, and then thirdly, he takes the woman. And this answer that comes back to him, you know who she is? She's the son of Eliam and, and the wife of Uriah. This should have this should have dissuaded him from going any further in his imagination. Because she was the son of of another mighty man. One of the 30 mighty men that ruled in Israel was Eliam. And one of the 30 mighty men who ruled in Israel was Uriah. And so two of his best, most valiant warriors are this woman's father and husband. In addition to that, her grandfather is Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors. And so he should have thought, you know, this, this kind of sin is going to destroy my relationships with these men and with my nation, with, with the whole nation of people. Instead of dissuading him, it actually, he decided to go through with it. He took her in verse 4. And this digression from a look to a took, from a glance to an act of immorality is very subtle. He looked, he inquired, and then he took and lay with her. It's very similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden, Eden, right? That when she saw the fruit, she looked at it, then she desired it, and then she ate and gave it to her husband with her. This is the nature of temptation that leads to sin. We see something that's desirable. We, We think on it. We desire it. And then we take it. So David was used to getting what he wanted, and here he gets what he wants. There's one problem, and that's found in verse 5. And the problem is that she conceived. If she hadn't gotten pre- pregnant. This could have been gone unnoticed. It would just be him and her that knew about it, and they could have gone on with their lives. He finds out that she's pregnant. And at this point, David could have come clean, confessed his sin openly, and repented, but instead he decides to, and really the rest of the text is all about David covering it up. This is the real, where the real tragedy comes. I mean, the tragedy is in defying God and committing immorality with a woman, but, but there's even greater tragedy to come in His covering it up. And so thirdly, we see that successful people cover up the damage they've created in verses 6 through 25. Successful people cover up the damage they created and actually David's pretty good at it from a human perspective Perspective of covering it up, isn't he? He gets the job done. And by the end, what you're going to see is that he actually makes himself out to be the hero in the whole thing. And so again, David what he want. He accomplishes what he wants. In verses 6 through 21, he makes three attempts to cover up the sin. The first attempt is found in verses 6 through 12. He sends... He sends um he sends weary Uriah home first he sends for Uriah again Uriah is one of the the 30 most valiant warriors he's a guy you need on the front lines you need him fighting in the in the battle he's a guy that wins and David sends for him in verse 6 send me Uriah the Hittite and Uriah must be thinking why would David ever send for me I mean, this must be something extremely important because you could have a runner, a courier, just a messenger come and, and get whatever you want. If you need to send something out to the field, use them. Don't, don't bring your, one of your best warriors out, out of the field and it doesn't make sense. Notice the question that David asks in verse 7. He asks concerning the welfare of Joab, the people, and the state of the war. In other words, so how's it going? How's everything coming out there? And David uses this as an opportunity so that Uriah will be an accomplice in covering up his sin without knowing it. And David sends Uriah home so that that, that he'll be intimate with his wife so that when the baby's born, Uriah and everyone else will think that it's Uriah's child. And So David says, why don't you go home and wash your feet? And David even sends a gift of food and wine in verse 9 to set the mood for them. But Uriah, notice how loyal he is in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life, David, and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Uriah is like, we have a fight. We have a battle going on. The house of the Lord is living in a temporary shelter. We have much more to do. And I'm supposed to just enjoy myself, I can't do that. For the sake of Israel, I will not do that. So David's first attempt to cover up his sin fails. But in verse 12, he says, stay here and then you can go back tomorrow. His second attempt is found in verse 13 and it is to try to send Uriah home. This time, instead of a tired Uriah, one who misses home misses his wife. This time, he sends a drunk Uriah home or at least tries to. So he spends the night just trying to get Uriah drunk. But even, even in Uriah's uh, drunkenness, right? even when his in, inhibitions are lowered, he still has the rationale to serve his nation, to refrain from personal pleasure. So David's second attempt to cover his sin fails. And so he tries a third time. And this time it's going to, to cost Uriah his life. The murder of Uriah at the hands of the Ammonites. Verses 14 through 21. Now, this third attempt for David to cover up his sin would be very risky because if he pulled it off, uh, because if he didn't pull it off, he would be exposed as a murderer and an adulterer. But if he could pull this off, if he could get Uriah out of the picture completely, he could have this sin go completely undetected. And David had a history of, of solving conflicts. He was good at it. And he was good at solving conflicts with the least amount of dam- damage. And so he said, if he's not going to go home, then I, I need to have him killed. And so in verses 14 and 15, he sends a letter at the hands of Uriah, ironically enough, to Joab. And this letter was probably a sealed letter with the king's signet ring stamped in the wax there that would keep the letter from being opened. And he tells Joab, put Uriah in the heart of the battle and then withdraw from him so that he dies at the hands of the enemies. Now, keep in mind that Joab doesn't know what Uriah has done. Very likely, David doesn't tell him why Uriah has to die. So Joab might think that Uriah had just committed a capital defense and David didn't want to make a big deal about it. He wanted to kind of subtly kill him. Whatever the case, Joab obeys in verse 16, and then he sends a report back to David, not knowing what's going on, saying David's probably going to be upset when he finds out my strategy. But but once he gets upset, can you tell him some good news? And the good news is that Uriah is dead. And the sad reality of David's sin is that Uriah is not the only innocent man to die. Notice verse 17. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So we might think that the ideal situation in David's perspective is, you know, send Uriah out in the front and then withdraw from him, and only Uriah dies. But the nature of where they were at the walls, all the archers there, is that more than one person had to die. So you have some collateral damage with David's cover-up. And Joab's confident that David is going to get mad when he finds out. I mean, what a poor military position. That's what this whole talk about Abimelech is about from judges. Like, even Abimelech died at the hand of a woman who dropped a stone on his head. So why go close to a wall? That's a very vulnerable position. So Joab wants David to know, David, when David gets upset about that of us going too close to the wall, tell him that the mission was accomplished. Uriah is dead, then he'll be happy. Cheer him up with that news. So David gets what he wants, wants even though it takes him a couple times. What he wanted was the sin to be covered up. There's one problem. In verses 22 through 25. The problem that was that in the process. Uriah was murdered along with many other, at least several other men. And in the process, David became callous to the value of life. David became callous to the value of life as if these lives of men who are fighting for God and for the nation of Israel are just pawns in David's hands to use in order to cover up what he has done. Look at at the message in verse 24. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from their wall, so some of your king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah is also dead. And then notice David's response in verse 25. Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. In other words, David's response is this. You know what? People die. It's part of war. It's part of life. Get on with it. Refortify yourselves and win the victory. It's okay. That's what he wants to encourage Joab. Joab's going to be discouraged because he lost some men, some key men, at least one key man, Uriah, along with some others. But but David's like, cheer him up by telling him, You know what, people die. David has become callous, at least in this case, to the value of human life. Finally, in verses 26 and 27, we see that successful people get what they want and look admirable in the process. They get what they want and look admirable in the process. David got what he wanted. In verse 26, he ultimately got Bathsheba as his wife. Notice our key word again here. Verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her. This word sent we've seen throughout the passage. right? He sent his messenger to find out about her. He sent and took her. He sent a message to Joab to have Uriah killed. And now he sends and takes her as his wife. And after Bathsheba mourned the death of her husband, David marries her. What must the public have thought about this marriage? I mean, we know what happened, and so we think, well, this is going to be clear to everybody in Israel what David's doing. I mean, it looks like David's being desperate. We might think that the headline following this wedding would be Bloodthirsty King Kills Military Hero and Marries His Wife. That's the, the news headline the next day for Israel. But that's not the headline that likely would, would have been on the front page. It was probably something more like this. Pregnant military widow is now destitute and left to a life of squalor. This is a really long headline. Noble king rides in on a white horse, saves the day by marrying her, and promises to care for her until death parts them. So David's not some wicked character that people see. They actually see him as a hero because he's taken a widow who now has no means to care for herself as his wife, and now she's going to be cared for for the rest of her life. They don't know what happened. They don't know that he's committed adultery with her and secretly killed her husband. So, in terms of what David, David has done, in his mind, success. He's covered it all up. He's gotten what he's wanted in the end. His public image is not marred. His new wife has a baby, verse 27. And he rides off into the sunset to live happily ever after. But there's one problem the author of Samuel wants us to know, and that is that God saw what David had done. Look at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the very first mention of the Lord or God in the passage. And if the story ended right before this statement, if the story ended in the middle of verse 27, we might think, you know, mission accomplished. David committed serious vile sins. They went largely unnoticed. I mean, maybe Bathsheba didn't even know that he had Uriah killed. I mean, have you ever considered that? Would David tell her that? I mean, it could be. You know, there's all sorts of speculation. Maybe she was the one that was um, trying to entice David while she was on the roof. Maybe, da- maybe she was the one who wanted her husband dead. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that David is, is good at covering up his sins. Even his army commander didn't know what was going on. And the nation probably saw him as a hero. But here is the key statement in the entire chapter. And that is, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Friends, we may be good at committing serious or subtle sins. We may be good at covering them up with greater sins, but God sees and knows, doesn't He? God sees and knows everything that is going on. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, "...the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth." Proverbs 15.3, "...the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good." Proverbs 15:11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. In other words, the grave. God sees what's in the grave. What's going on in the afterlife? And then the end of the verse is, how much more the hearts of men. If He can see what's going on in the afterlife among those who are dead, can He not see into our hearts? And the obvious answer is yes. Nothing is hidden from the sight and the knowledge of God. So let me give you three, three points in conclusion here. Number one, the danger of success. Please don't hear me say that success is bad. Please don't hear me say that, that we should be happy with mediocrity. David pursued success in life and, and he did it God's way up to chapter 11 here. God was merciful to him. God was responsible for David's financial and positional success. But but what I'm suggesting is that the danger of success is that we can move to a place of independence like King Uzziah where we look back on all that we have done and say, that was me. I was the reason for my success. And with independence from God, ungodliness is sure to follow. When we get to a place where we think we are it, ungodliness is sure to follow. I love the definition that Peter Cushman gave for godliness a few weeks ago here on Sunday night. He said ungodliness is living as if God doesn't exist. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. That is David to a T. He's living during this period of time as if God does not exist. He lives as if he is the center of his own universe. He lives as if God didn't cause his success. He lives as if God doesn't exist at all. Throughout our study of David and his life, we've been accustomed to this statement, and the Lord was with David. But this story is noteworthy for its absence of God. When faced with God's mercy in chapter 7 through 10, David responds with humility and service, but here, He gives up on seeing himself rightly before God. Here, he sees himself less as a recipient of God's mercy and more as a a conqueror on his own, one who created his own success. And so there's great danger when we get to a place, even if we've come to the place by God's means, where we get to a place of success. And and, and the key is that when we get to that place, maybe even more so than when we're destitute, we need to guard our hearts Watch out for our hearts starting to become independent from God. I don't know if you've considered that in your own life or if you've been in periods of life where that's happened. Or you've had some maybe financial security. Or you've had some some raise or some promotion at work. And you worked hard to get there and you used principles that were derived from the scriptures. But once you got to that place you started to think, you know what? This was all me. Guard your hearts when you get to a place of success because you are not, I am not immune from a catastrophic fall into spiritual disaster. No one of us is immune. If we think we are, we better be careful lest we fall. Secondly, the reality of mixed motivations. Many times the cover-up is worse than the crime. For David... He could have spared himself and so many more people pain and suffering if he simply would have owned up to his sin early on rather than trying to cover it up. But the reality is that just like the initial sin was probably probably justified in David's mind, so was the cover-up probably justified in his mind. And one of the great troubles of living in a sin-cursed world with a with a body and a personality that has a sinful nature is that we are good at justifying and rationalizing things in our minds, aren't we? Things that are clearly wrong. And so I think we don't have any way to to know this for sure, but but I wonder if David was actually using a motivation while he was covering it up to protect God's name. You know, maybe David thought, I committed the sin. I shouldn't have done that. But, but what would happen now if all the people know about this? They're not going to respect me. They're not going to follow God. So I wonder if David had in the back of his mind, I'm going to protect God's name. How many, how many church leaders have committed scandalous sins and then tried to cover it up in order to protect the name of God? We don't want this to get out into the media. because This would be terrible for the name of Christ. And so We hide. We cover it up. Covering up sin is like spilling red paint on a white carpet. We might be able to cover it up for a time with a piece of furniture or a rug. But the reality is that the stain is there and eventually it will be discovered. And the same is true with our sin. That our sin will be uncovered at some point. We may be able to go our entire lives by getting people to think that we haven't done anything that that terrible or maybe hiding something that needs to be exposed. But either in this life or in the judgment, that sin will be exposed. It's no trouble for God to expose sin. He's going to do it in chapter 12 with just a word from Nathan. You are the man. God's going to do it at the judgment day. It's not going to be hard for God to expose sin. The question is will we be willing to own up to our sins? Are we willing to to own up to them and turn from them? There is this reality of mixed motivation. I think we can be like David in that way where we commit a sin and we don't want to make it worse. We don't want to and so we're not going to we're not going to talk to anybody about it. You know, this sin is is pulling me down. I know it's caused lots of damage already, but you know, I don't want to talk to anybody about it because I know it's just going to It's going to be embarrassing. People will think of me differently. So we need to guard ourselves against justifying or rationalizing our sin. Thirdly, the strategy of prevention. What do we do to avoid the sin of David? I've already mentioned that we need to guard ourselves when we get to a place of success, particularly because we can get to that place where we we think we don't need God and then sin is lurking at the door. It's not that we avoid success, but we need to stop the pattern of sin as soon as as we see it. We need to stop... We need to to say no to the temptation as soon as we recognize it. I mean, let's think backward from the story and think of how much less damage there could have been if David would have said no at one step earlier, alright? So let's think backwards from the story. Would it have benefited David or the people if he had repented before Nathan approached him? We're going to come to that in chapter 12. I think the answer is yes. If we read Psalm 32, which goes along with this text, Psalm 32, verse 3, I think it is, David says that when I hid my sin, I was wasting away. My body was wasting away. Have you, have you had that experience? When you, when you had a sin that needed to be talked about, that needed to be exposed and dealt with, and you just kept bearing it and hiding it, doesn't it cause great misery? For David, he could have he could have um, he could have avoided all that by after acknowledging his sin. What we're going to find is that it's actually a year between the time that he commits adultery and murder and the time that Nathan actually confronts him. So. His body's wasting away, knowing how miserable it is to be in, to live in opposition with God. It doesn't mean that he avoids the discipline that God would have sent, but certainly he would have avoided at least that temporary misery. How about let's go back a step further? Would it have benefited David if he had repented before he planned Uriah's death? Would it have benefited anyone else? Obviously, Uriah would still live. He would have died another way, apparently. Now, if David had stepped up and said, I have committed adultery and owned up to it and accepted the consequences of his sin at that time, it would have been ugly, wouldn't it? I mean, Uriah would have found out. Uriah would have hated him. He would lose trust in a number of people. But still, it would have been good because he would have saved lives. What about a step back? Would it have benefited David or anyone else if he had repented before he was immoral with Bathsheba? You know, Maybe he just saw her and then inquired about her but then said, you know what? That is not right. This woman belongs to someone else. I cannot covet my neighbor's wife. I cannot commit adultery. I cannot turn against God. You know, God would have forgiven him. No damage would have been done to Bathsheba, Uriah, those other men who were killed. No death would have come to their son. What if David would have Repented even earlier than that. What about before He inquired about her? You know, he, seen, he saw her, He desired her, and then He repented to that point before even asking about her. Obviously, there's benefit there as well. You see, strategy of prevention is no matter how far we've gone in this sin and in this cover-up, the best time to stop, the best time to own up to our sin is, you could say yesterday, but now. We can't go back to yesterday. The best time is now. You realize that if you don't own up to your sin now and the consequences of your sin now, then it's only going to be worse. You have to keep covering it up more and more. And what I'm calling for is not for us to come out and say, okay, here's all of my secret sins that I've done. That's not what I'm calling for. We're not going to have a public acknowledgement of all of our secret sins. The point is that, that we need to own up to them to God. Here's, here's the problem with David. He didn't even own up to them with God. And if he would have simply said, God, I don't, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know what the next step is. But what I do know is that I've sinned before you and I acknowledge that. Will you restore me? I think God would have made it clear what the next steps He would need to take. And that's what I'm asking of us. That's what I'm calling us to do. We may think that we can get away with our sin, but God knows. Nothing is hidden from His view. And it's only a matter of time before He exposes our sin for all to see. We do much damage to ourselves and to others and to the name of Christ and we think that our lives are under our own control. We get comfortable, secure, rest on our accomplishments. And we go on living as if God doesn't exist. Now maybe you are involved in a sin right now that that is just too hard for you to conquer. Can I just commend to you the Scriptures and, and God that, that um, if you need help, come and talk to someone who can help you. Maybe you're too embarrassed to come and talk to someone here at the church, but talk to someone who can help you. I'd love to talk to you if, if that's something that you think needs to be handled. And you, you don't know how. You've been trying to fight it for days, months, years, and it just keeps getting worse. The time to deal with sin is now because it will only destroy us. That's what sin is meant to do. It's meant to destroy us. And so we need to own up to it and and ask God for help. I think it starts there. Maybe you don't know what the next step is for you, but it starts with talking to God. So let me encourage us to do that tonight. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the the warnings that You give to us in Scripture that keep us from uh, turning farther away from You. Lord, it is a sign of Your mercy that You are long-suffering, that You are patient with us, that You don't treat us as our sins deserve, that You don't judge us as soon as we sin or when we continue to cover it up. Give us time to think through these things, to repent. Lord, may it not be that our sin is so great that it is exposed because of the damage that it causes. But Lord, may we be sensitive enough to Your Holy Spirit now to to bring it before You, to acknowledge it as sin and to ask for Your help to change. And we're thankful that Your Scripture has instruction for how we can change. And I pray that You would give wisdom to each believer here and help them to know the joy of being right with you having, um, having you as their guide and Lord help us not to get to a place where we think that we are independent of you where we think that our success is a result of our own efforts and strength help us to constantly be leaning on you for mercy and grace and recognizing that all that we have is from you and that's why we of all people ought to be people who are thank- thankful because those who are not thankful are are actually depending on their own their own strength their own abilities. And we are thankful because we know that everything that we have is a gift from you. So we depend on you. Help us to do that all the way until the end. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.